Hello, and welcome to The Unique CPA. I'm your host, Randy Crabtree. The goal of our show is to keep you at the forefront of the changing face of public accounting by having conversations with fascinating leaders and bringing you their stories, insights, and advice. The Unique CPA podcast is brought to you by Trimerit, the specialty tax professionals. Today, our guest is John Bly. John is Regional Managing Partner of the Carolinas with Aprio, a CPA-led business advisory firm. After starting his career at PwC, John co-found Bly & Bly CPAs. Under his entrepreneurial leadership, his family-owned bookkeeping and tax services business became one of the fastest-growing privately-held companies in North Carolina, landing on both the Charlotte Business Journal's Fast 50 and Inc. 5000 lists. John engineered the firm's growth both organically and through M&A, merging with 14 firms since 2004 and ultimately leading to a combination with Aprio at the end of 2019. In 2014, John published his first book entitled Cracking the Code, an entrepreneurial's guide to growing your business through mergers and acquisitions for pennies on the dollar. The book provides growth-motivated entrepreneurs with strategic step-by-step blueprint for sourcing, analyzing, financing, and closing the right deals. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Randy. Looking forward to the next little time we have together and looking to have some fun and hopefully sharing some info with your listeners. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you've got a lot of info. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to be interested to hear. And, and what I'd like to do is just uh, before we jump into the whole mergers and acquisitions and, and obviously 14 deals, 15 deals, I guess, with, uh, with the April deal, and I'm maybe missing some in there. You can correct me if I'm wrong on the numbers. But before that, you started at PwC. And I know from, you know, uh, actually listening to you on other podcasts and, and reading about you, you knew you wanted to be a, a CPA from early on. Uh, did you know when you went to PwC, did you think you were a lifer there or did you have an idea that you were going to be moving on to your own firm at some point in time? How did that progress? Yeah, I definitely thought I was a lifer. I, I felt like the big four at the time, it was more than four, but the big four today or the final four was really the, the peak, the ultimate, you know, penultimate peak for accounting. That's the way I felt. And I felt that a partner at a firm of that size carried with it uh, a title and a rank and an excitement um, that was unrivaled and unmatched. And so I really felt like that was it for me. However, uh, a year, year and a half in, I realized uh, big firms come with uh, a lot of red tape and a lot of, uh, you know, sort of stair step growth. And, and for me, that wasn't, that wasn't my favorite thing. The, the firm was great. Nothing bad to say, but uh, culturally, I wasn't a fit long term. I felt like, you know, I had to do something on my own and be able to provide the type of culture that I wanted to provide for people. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see that. I, when I started public accounting, I actually had the idea I was going to start my own firm. I gave myself four years uh, at other places uh, and then uh, I was going to try to go out on my own. I actually did after three and a half years, um, but I had that plan in place already uh, for good or bad. That's what we did with you then coming up with this idea of going out on your own and Starting it, and I didn't mention this in the intro, but starting this with your wife, Bly and Bly, was the plan from day one then, hey, mergers and acquisition is how we're going to grow this, or how did that come about? Yeah, you know, ironically, 
pre pre Google, right? I know that that sounds funny, but uh, pre Google and and pre easy searches, the Journal of Accountancy actually got me started. So in the classified sections in the back of the Journal of Accountancy, there was ads from brokers who sold accounting firms, and I thought you can sell and buy an accounting firm. That's crazy. Who knew? And uh, and that was really the precipice for the idea back in 03, 04, and 05, you know, sort of in that time frame as I continued to stay attuned to what was happening in the industry and what was happening with small CPA firms. And so ironically enough, the good old AICPA and the Journal of Accountancy got me started. Nice. Uh, yeah, I, I think I remember seeing those. I actually did two deals when we were growing our firm, not to the level you did. Uh, you're going to have a lot more knowledge and insight to discuss on this with, with me today. But those were deals that we kind of just ran into. It's just, you know, hey, you know, this guy's looking to retire. He needs someone. Unfortunately, one of the deals we did was a, uh, a CPA in the middle of tax season just got really sick. And it was, it was a oh. sad situation, but he needed someone to take over the practice. And we scrambled during that tax season to, to help out all his clients. Um, so, but yeah, I, I remember seeing those ads, but never, never uh, actually uh, pulled the trigger on any of that. And then you did, obviously... How did those first deals go? Was there a change over time from the first to the last? I guess let's start on the first deals and, and you know, time frame and, and whatnot to get those things going. So we did two in August of 04 and one in September of 04. So back to back, 30, 60 days apart, small deals, solo practitioners, no employees. And they went as good as could possibly be imagined. What I would say, the learning curve for me, and you, you could probably appreciate this given your background, there's a big difference between the big four and a solo practitioner. And I, I don't think I knew that, uh, let's say I was young and naive, and thankfully I was, and I was willing to make it up with a lot of hard work because I don't think I realized just the difference between some of the companies and, and people I worked with at the big four versus what I was getting myself into with a, a, a solo S corp that does you know, 300,000 of revenue or a schedule C or whatever. And the, and the level of accounting that they may use versus, you know, audited financial statements that, uh, that we would get on the tax side historically at PwC. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. And I don't keep wanting to mention, you know, my history, but I kind of feel like I, I, I mirror you a little again, you're to the, a much higher level, but that was one reason I did when I started in public accounting, why I started at a small local firm, because I, knew that those are the clients I wanted to work with and, you know, going to a big four. Actually, I don't even remember what it was at that time. I'm 58 years old. It was probably, you know, big eight there, something at that time, right? That, uh, what yeah. was it at one point? Was it 10? Yeah. I can't even remember. Yeah. It, it, before it was eight, it was 10. Yep. Yeah, that's what I thought. So I'm, I'm guessing it might have even been 10 at that time. And I just, I just, you know, I, I knew that I wanted that uh, local presence. So, so for you to do it coming from Big Four, that had to be quite a culture shock. And speaking of culture shocks, I guess, when you did these deals then, was it just, we need a deal? Or was it, were you at that point looking at what's the culture between us and this firm? What's the niches they're involved in? Their employee, I mean, was it that or was it just, hey, we need these dollars coming in and let's see the deal we could do? Yeah, so in 04, when we first started from 04 up till 
probably 08 or 09, probably about six or seven deals in. It was really about volume. It was really focused on getting to a sustainable mass, getting a bunch of clients that then had referrals coming in that then we could uh, expand services, et cetera, and have enough employees to, to be able to support the workload. Starting in about 07, uh, actually, it was probably the end of 08, beginning of 09 is when we started to get much more selective on the deals that we looked at. And they did then focus on exactly what you're describing, which is uh, culture of the employees, client base, maybe not as much niche even at that point, but more what types of clients did they have? What were the fee structures? How did they perform the work? And, and that was really became the focus. But that was, that was four or five years in and, uh, and, and probably not until about 1.6 million uh, of revenue and about, you know, call it 14 to 16 people before we started focusing the next set of acquisitions on those, on those very key uh, indicators. And then, then what were those key indicators when you decide, I mean, d- did you define this, 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 and then, you know, search out a firm that met those indicators? And I'm guessing it wasn't firm number one that met those, the, those indicators. So how did that all, all work? Yeah, in 07, the end of 07, beginning of 08, we started actually doing direct mail campaigns to firms in our area within about a 10-mile radius, which surprising, you know, and you probably already know this, but the people at the big four, including myself at the time, we could probably name about five other CPA firms, right? You could name RSM, Grant Thornton, BDO, right? I mean, that's about it. And, and it depended on regionally if they were in your market. Well, there's 44 thousand CPA firms registered with the AI CPA. So there's a whole lot of small ones that I did not know about. And so we started doing mailing campaigns in 08. And, and to your point, we did about 60, 70 letters. And this is within about 10 miles, maybe it was 15 miles of our office. And we had that many theoretical competitors or potential opportunities. And that would turn into usually about five to seven conversations to get one deal done. So it is like sales. It's a numbers game. And, and Randy, you and I have talked. I think we do have some similarities in sales as well. And it is a numbers game, unfortunately. And so if you want to do one deal, um, you can look for a long time to get the perfect deal. We didn't always look for the perfect. We looked for a good deal, but we weren't afraid to walk away from five or six that were bad deals. Yep. So you're saying we, was it mainly you or were other people within the firm helping you with this? I'm a big culture person, right? So we always included other people as part of the process. So uh, if it was just me making the decisions, that was bad because, you know, I may miss something on one person, maybe the culture fits. So we always made sure that other people, especially people who had been there longer, were part of the meet and greets, the lunches, the getting to know the other side of the team so that if there was something that I missed that they were like, you know what, you got to be aware of X, Y, or Z. From a strategic standpoint on the growth side and the acquisitions, I was leading all of that effort. But when it came to the culture fit, I wanted to make sure that, you know, the current employees who were, who we were very happy with were happy with the culture fit. This had to take a significant amount of your time, I'm assuming, when you're doing this many deals. Were you, were you low on the billable hours uh, end and high on the M&A end, or were you up there on both things? How was that working for you? Yeah, I would say from 04 till um, 2009 or 10, I was high on everything, right? Yeah. So I would, say, I would say I was a young machine that was willing to put in a significant amount of hours. I don't hide behind that. I'm not suggesting that's for everybody. But at that point in my life and my career, um, I didn't have kids until 06. So 04 and 05, my wife and I could devote a significant amount of time. 
And then call it 09, um, I started to really peel back on billable hours and focus more on strategy. And we were, we were about 2.3 million then, 2.2 million, something like that. And that's when I really started to peel back on the billable hours, um, started to transition clients to other folks at the firm and make sure that um, I could focus on acquisitions and, and then integration because integration on the back end was just as critical. Oh, I'm sure. So at that point in 09 then, how many, how many acquisitions did you have under your belt? So we did, yeah. So we had done uh, seven by 09. Seven. Seven so by half 09. of them at that point. Yeah. And then another half uh, over the next uh, seven or eight ten, years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, years. Okay. And so the, what, what, what did you ultimately end up with uh, revenue size then? You were 2.3 at that point. Yeah. Pre, pre-merging with Aprio, we were just shy of 12 million. Okay. That's a very nice. Uh, and what, that's in a 15 year mm-hmm. period. Yep. Yeah. I can and, see why you're on that fastest growing list. And, and, you know, to be honest, one of the things that, that Aprio appreciated and as we went along, we were very candid with the people that we acquired. We also sold pieces of our business along the way wow. because something we did in 04 for, I'm making it up, $150 for a 1040 because it was my wife and I working out of our house and every dollar went to the bottom line. Didn't make sense in 2012 when we were, you know, $3 million, $4 million. So we actually did, um, and I'd recommend this to, to firms as they're growing. It's time to think about, do all clients make sense? Which ones do have we had for 15, 20 years that don't make sense. And you either, you know, significantly increase pricing or we found that actually the better strategy that worked for us was we packaged up sets of clients and we sold them to other firms. And we did that five or six times uh, between 2006 and 2016. Okay. Uh, yeah, that I, not even something I was thinking about, but that makes a lot of sense. And, and I can completely understand that the not meeting, uh, you know, working out of your home, uh, not a lot of overhead. Uh, uh, that's how I started too. So I understand. And, and uh, I probably did not keep up with that uh, billing increases as well as I should have <laughs> over the growth time, which is, I'm sure, easy for people to do. Accountants um, are sometimes their own worst enemy. I'm sure oh, yeah. you know that as well. Yeah, I, I, oh, I definitely can uh, fit into that for certain things, for sure. So, um, so then now you're continuing this growth. I, I want to back up, I guess, a second. So, the things then after '09 that you started looking for for a fit, kind of expand on those a little more. What were the items that you really were you wanted to see when you were making an acquisition? If the partner was quote unquote retiring, then we were looking for what does what type of client mix does it make up? Is it is it the similar age and demographic? Because if so, then how many of those clients aren't going to be business owners in the next five years? And this is not going to be as good a business. So that was really critical. And then services, we were really focused on, do they just do tax? If so, probably not that exciting to us anymore. Do they do outsourced accounting, client accounting solutions, whatever the different firms call it these days? Um, Did they do audits and reviews? Any firm at that point, because we were tax heavy from our backgrounds, my wife and my backgrounds coming out of PwC and, and her from Grant Thornton, and then the firms we acquired were heavy tax. And so we were growing organically the audit side of it. And so it was critical that if there was a firm that did audit work, that quickly got to the higher end of our list. And we were significantly more interested if they did some of that work. The other thing we were really um, keen on is rates. You know, like do their rates line up with ours? And if not, that's not a huge problem if 
we think it's because of technology issues. If they're doing tax returns inefficiently, as an example, and we're leveraging technology, well, then we can probably help give a 10, 20, 30% lift in rates. But if it was not that, then it probably wasn't a fit. It was going to be challenging to encourage you know, higher fees. I definitely can uh, uh, align myself with a lot of things that you're saying. So this is pretty interesting for, to me. I did you know, same thing, built very tax heavy. Probably one reason why I uh, merged in with another firm in 06 and got out because I was just so tired of, uh, of tax seasons. Uh, I'm not telling that the tax seasons are a bad thing. It was just that I, I went way too heavy on, on the tax end of things. And, but it worked out great for me because Trimeric came out of that merger that they started that and I've never had more fun than I've had in the last 15 years uh, uh, working with Trimerit. So now you've got all this, you've built this nice firm, you're, you're, you know, I'm assuming you were one of the larger firms in your area or largest. Uh, um. Yeah, there's in Charlotte, North Carolina, there's, um, there's, we unfortunately or fortunately, we have all of the big four and then we have some really, really large regional players. We're now, That's the, right. I knew we're that. now, I think the third, 13th largest city in the country and um, the metro area has over 3 million. And so we have, uh, we were the banking, second largest banking capital in the country. So that provided a lot of services for big four, big regional firms. But if you look at purely local firms, uh, we were the second largest local firm in the area. Okay. And so now you've done this, you've built this nice firm. Did you relax or were you still looking or did, is that when you, did you decide it's time for me to find someone to acquire this or did that just happen by someone else coming to you, uh, which I'm assuming was Richard Kopelman with April? Yeah. You know, starting in 2012, we started to get, uh, I'll say, get on people's radars yep. um, because we started to make all these lists because we had a really young partner group. At that time, I think all of our partners were under 45, which is appealing to a large regional firm who wants to use some horsepower to grow. Yeah, And, and so we started taking a lot of calls and, and I would take calls from, you know, a significant number of the top 50 firms in the country. And I would, you know, have, I'd be willing to have a conversation, but it never really led anywhere. And I wasn't really, none of our partners were that interested. And Richard and I have been friends uh, for, for five or six years, uh, but really didn't actually get deep in discussions till, uh, till about a year ago, a little over a year ago in mm. 2019. Um, we, we shared ideas. We, we talked a lot about, you know, how to build a firm. We talked about entrepreneurship. Um, we talked about clients, but we never really, and we shared a lot of clients. We sent a lot of clients to get some specialty services, to get some international tax help, et cetera. So we did a lot of joint work for four or five years. Okay. So then when did that, when did the, I guess that decision get made? And then how did you use the knowledge that you had gained as the uh, person doing the acquiring or the firm doing the acquiring and I guess, transfer that to this deal that now you're on the under, other end of things. Was that a, a weird position to be in? Or was, I'm assuming it was very helpful with all the knowledge you'd gained over the years. Yeah, for sure. I would say the biggest knowledge gain is, was the culture fit. And so having worked together for four or five years on some joint clients, a lot, of our, a lot of our team had had interaction with members of the Aprio team, whether that was partners or managers or whatever it was, there was enough interaction over the years. And they had visited our office a couple times with some specialty people to talk about the types of things they could help us with. So we had had a significant amount of interaction. Now, 
if uh, if Richard and I had met a year ago, I'm not sure this could have gotten this would have gotten done. If that makes sense, we had known each other for a long time, and because I was so big on culture, I knew that the firms that have called me over the years, we would never fit in. Right? Like right. from we're we're significantly entrepreneurial. We're focused on growth. We're acquiring firms. It's like the wild wild west, right? And um, and that would not have fit in a big corporatized uh, you know top fifty firm who didn't really appreciate that entrepreneurial spirit. But Aprio was built by three entrepreneurs in the 50s and, uh, and, and actually did an incredible job of continuing that legacy of entrepreneurship across uh, managing partners over the years. Nice. So then now, now we're post-merger, uh, not quite a year. What was it, last fall? Yep, November 1 of 2019. Okay, so obviously it's been a strange uh, period <laughs> uh, post-merger, but in general, uh, things going well, how things, was there was there hiccups that were not known? And I'm sure there were every time you acquired, but there are hiccups that are not known, or has everything been smooth, things you've had to overcome? How's that? One thing for sure, we're the largest firm that they've ever merged in, right? Okay. So they, they didn't really start doing mergers until 06. So call it 50 years into their, into yeah. their history. Right. Uh, they grew organically till then. And under Richard's leadership, starting in 12 or 13, they started to go on a little bit of acquisition. But not only were we the largest, but we're really their first. They, they had a location in Birmingham, Alabama. That was uh, 20, 25 people that they acquired about a year before us. And so this was really their first serious uh, move outside of the Georgia market. So the combination of those things went surprisingly smooth. What I would say is they did the right things. They brought in some outside consultants to help significantly with integration, build integration teams and plans because they knew this was different than anything they had done before. Right. You know, with a separate market and the size. And um, the, the only things that, you know, always could go better is technology specific, right? Right now we're we're finishing the integration. We should actually finish next week on technology, and because of just the timing being November, we thought we could get a couple things done by January, but it just didn't happen as fast. The only other hiccup I'll tell you, Randy, and and for your listeners, they might find this funny. And I don't know. I know you know Richard a little bit. Did you know? Have you heard our merger naming story yet? Oh, I actually have heard it, but yeah, go ahead and share that. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, so we were supposed to close on November 1st, and on October 30th, Aprio had a license in North Carolina to do business as a CPA firm. No issues for years. Well, Aprio is what they consider a fictitious name, so it's not you know founders' names or partners' names or anything like that. Well, on October 30th, two days before, the state board of North Carolina said, hold on. We were totally good with your name when you didn't have a physical presence, but now that you're going to have a physical presence here, you can't have the name Aprio. And we were like, what? It's two days away. Like, how do we, how does this, like, so, um, you know, to keep it short, we went through appeals process that didn't work. We tried something else, by the way, we went ahead and did the merger and just operated under two legal names, which is right. what the board suggested. And at the end of November, Richard changed his name. To, to Richard Barry Aprio Copelman. <laughs> and we got a unanimous vote from the board now that his name, now that his middle name was Aprio. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I had heard that story. And every time I hear it, I crack up. I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I actually heard that story, I think, right after it happened, but it wasn't from Richard. And then I talked to Richard a couple of days later and he confirmed the story was <laughs> accurate. So that's amazing. So, so now it's, that his name. Funny, big, 
big firms. RSM had that problem in North Carolina, and really? I have a lot of I have a lot of friends that are uh, RSM partners, and uh, I would call them afterwards and be like, you know, uh, uh, our our partners were willing to change their name. I don't know why somebody at RSM <laughs> didn't change their name. Exactly. <laughs> is this just a North Carolina thing, or is this? Have you heard this elsewhere? We've we have heard it in Texas and Tennessee. Those are also issues, but not to the extent of North Carolina. So, uh, so as it relates to Tennessee and Texas, already okay, um, just in case we expand there in the future. But yeah, North Carolina is just a real extreme case. RSM said it was the last state to approve their name. Wow, that's amazing. And it took and, them like a year and a half or two years for the, for the fifth largest firm in the world to take a right, year and a half be, or two years. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and I've actually seen, we, you know, we deal with a lot of CPA firms. I've seen other firms that have gone with these non-partner names um so uh, maybe uh if anybody's looking to get into into business in north carolina they might uh, learn something from this uh, <laughs> there might be some more name changes coming on so, so all right well, well that, that's that's great anything anything advice wise you want to add on m a work before i transition to a couple other things uh, the only other thing I'd say is for those that are on the acquiring side, not only is culture important, but make sure, um, take it to another degree if you're keeping partners. Um, so yes, it's really important to that, the, that the people line up, but if partners aren't willing to take on different roles, learn new things, you know, answer to other partners, accountability, et cetera, from another firm that you're acquiring, that will turn into a problem over time. Oh, yeah. it, might, it might not rear its head initially, but it will turn into a problem eventually. And so uh, I guess that's the only the other thing I'd say is deals are, in my view, by the way, I'm not sure that everybody agrees with me, but in deals under, you know, three to five million on the CPA firm side, it's much easier if the partners are retiring to to put the pieces together than it is if they're staying. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely see that. I, I, I can understand that for sure. All right. Well, I appreciate that info. I, I think people will find that uh, interesting. We actually, I think it was a show recently, we talked with someone who who had left her firm after 20 years, started a one-person shop. And so that was a really interesting story. Uh, now I think I have a, a show coming up where we're going to be interviewing a, a company that deals with advising CPA firms on M&A work and just not as much M&A. It is M&A, but also just prepping themselves for the future from a, a, a value standpoint, whether it's M&A, whether it's partner buyout, whether it's in, and just culture standpoint too. So I think I think think this is nice transition between those shows too. So I really appreciate that information. A couple things I just want to ask you, because uh, I find this intriguing. Entrepreneurial Master's Program from MIT. What is that? Yeah, so it's a special program. Uh, it's a joint program between the Entrepreneurs Organization, which is a worldwide organization with almost 15,000 members, and MIT. And it's a, a three-year program right on MIT's campus. And you you know live there for a week and you've got some work throughout the rest of the year as well. But you're, you're 16 hours a day in class. I've, I'm, I've never, uh, I'm pretty certain I've never, I've never seen that much intense information in such a short amount of time. Wow. And I didn't tell people, but you have gone through that program and, yeah. and got that degree certificate what is it considered? Yeah, certificate certificate yeah. 
That's pretty cool. And MIT is a nice campus. I've yes. I've turned that I've toured that before. It's a it's a beautiful area. Mm-hmm. And then you did mention that that's tied in with the entrepreneurs organization, which is a thing that you've been a past member of the global board of. Is that correct? Yes. So uh, it's a it's an organization that I'm passionate about. It's re- it's really helped me. I've been a member since uh, 07, 08, 08. And um and it's helped me get where I am as an entrepreneur, obviously I'm a CPA by trade, but I'm an entrepreneur by junkie. And, uh, and so, um, we didn't even talk about the acquisitions we've done outside of the CPA space. We've done, uh, other acquisitions in the fitness space and stuff. I think and I so, did read something about that. Well, you might want to expand on that for a minute. Yeah. Then. So the entrepreneurs organization is a big organization. It's a worldwide nonprofit, uh, that helps entrepreneurs learn and grow and also gives them a peer network to share ideas. And, uh, and I was lucky enough from uh, 2016 to 19 to spend three and a half years on the global board, which is, uh, I was one of nine members across 62 countries to lead, um, a very large nonprofit, uh, from a strategy perspective. We have a full team. We have, uh, 150 employees direct, and we have another call it 150 that are indirect. So, um, it's a big organization. Oh, nice. And, and obviously a passion of yours then as well to spend that much time. I'm assuming there was significant time commitment on that board. Yeah, I had to, I had to commit to uh, a minimum of eight weeks of travel a year. Now yeah. that would have been totally different in the COVID era. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. yes, a lot of a lot of time. Yeah, I uh, I think I flew 110, 120,000 miles last year, and I had 29 flights by the end of February this year, and haven't been on the plane since. So uh, travel is. <laughs> Change quite a bit in our current uh, our current environment. Uh, sure. um, yeah, that would have definitely changed for you. All right. Well, I wanted to really get those two things in because those two things, uh, the master's program, I was just curious on, and then the organization. I'm sure that's a, a, a passionate thing, and I think people find uh, looking that up and getting some information. And in fact, how how can people look that up? What is, where do they go? Yep. So website is eo network.org there's also you know linkedin pages and twitter pages and facebook pages you, if, if you're more of a social media person but a uh, lot of information on the website that helps you know founders of companies to share ideas and learn and grow that's awesome all right well we're gonna wrap up here uh but before we do a couple things one i like that and on a, a fun fact, and you and I talked about a few things, but I think we both have a passion for traveling. So I thought I'd ask you about uh, your travels. Travel is a passion of yours. And you, as we speak, you are currently traveling, uh, and probably not in the way you normally do, but in an RV around the what western part of the country? Yep. We're on day 25, 24 right now. We've got seven days left. I've never been in an RV before, but uh, in June, we just decided got to get the heck out of Dodge. And uh, so uh, I've got three girls, 13, 12, and 10, and we're spending 31 days out west. In a cl- small enclosed RV. How's that? <laughs> Everything good? <laughs> so, so far, so good. Like this, uh, the kids are at the lake right now. I'm doing a podcast and, uh, you know, we're just, I'm working a handful uh, every morning I'm spending time before they wake up. I'm just, you know, setting up at a picnic table outside or whatever. And it actually know. sounds nice. sounds yeah. real nice. I'd like to be doing that, uh, right now. Uh, when you're not RVing then, which is most of the time, and it sounds like where would be the place you'd love to be traveling wise? Yeah, I love international travel. Um, my favorite place I've ever been is New Zealand. Um, I really, really find it beautiful. Find the the history of it pretty cool and and it's just all different terrain is uh, i find it to be 
pretty incredible. Not someplace I've been yet. I do love traveling. And that is a place other than that flight. That is a place I do plan on going to at some point. And what is that? How many hour flight? Yeah, it's like 16 or 18 from uh, from L.A. Right. So yeah. you got to get out there first. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. Well, um, I appreciate you taking the time from the RV trip to uh, record this podcast. Um, before we wrap up, if anybody wants to find out more about you or get a hold of you, uh, what's ways they can look you up? Sure. Uh, LinkedIn uh, is easy. John Bly, B-L-Y, C-P-A. Uh, also, uh, my email address is john, J-O-H-N dot bly, B-L-Y at aprio.com. I'm also active on Twitter as well. If you want to look up my handle, it's John Bly CPA. Awesome. Well, again, thanks for the time. I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, I think, I know I learned a lot. I knew I got a lot out of that. I think people will find it very interesting that just that whole M&A thing within public accounting is big right now, and not even just public accounting. I'm guessing that you, uh, uh, through your book at least, can advise people and personally can advise people on M&A work. And we didn't even touch on your book, but people know it's out there. We announced it at the beginning. So they can look up your book and go out and buy that on Amazon, I'm assuming, right? Yes. Yep. All right. Well, again, thanks, John. And thank you for joining us today. And you can find all the links and show notes for today's episode, as well as more about Trimerit at theuniquecpa.com. Remember to subscribe and join us for our next episode, where we'll be going beyond compliance into forging new pathways of delivering value to clients, diversifying your revenue streams, and leading edge management techniques and styles. 